It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This edition of How to Be a CEO is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharmadine Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year, thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. ES Audio. So you've risen to the top, you've got a powerful role in a major company, and you know you have the skills to go it alone. Should you? You know, having a big job like that, you get a meeting with anyone, right? You had huge budgets, big teams, big brand name behind you. But then when you leave and you actually notice that no one wants to meet with you anymore, it's just tough. Hob Van Barkel was the marketing boss for Red Bull. Now he's CEO of his own energy drink company, Tenzing. Within two years of launching, it had a £2 million turnover and it's grown ever since. On the face of it, that sounds like an overnight success, doesn't it? Here's how Hob's first pitch meeting went. I asked him to come down and he was on the stairs walking down and he looked at me and he said, I told you I wasn't interested because he saw the cans and he walked back up. And I, I, actually, I actually cried. I'm David Marsden from the Evening Standard. You're going to hear a lot about climbing mountains in this show. There's a mountain on the Tenzing cans. It's a fair analogy. And the story of the company itself actually begins on one. So let's start with the Tenzing story itself, because I think it's one of my favourite entrepreneurial tales. Where did it begin? It all started on a walk, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So, well... Before I went out for that walk, I knew already kind of what I wanted to do. There was an, a huge energy drinks market that was kind of saturated with, you know, brands that are, you know, with artificial ingredients, high sugar levels uh, that pump their uh, marketing budgets into like, you know, the F1s and uh, like, you know, lots of carbon fossil fuels consuming, you know, marketing programs effectively. So I, I thought the basic premise was really simple. It's always been, I want to have a natural energizing drink that is made purely from plants, is low calorie and sustainable. That's what I was kind of looking for. But then you still, of course, need a recipe, you need a name. And it all kind of came together on that, on that kind of one moment where I was like, I, I was in, 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 in Asia traveling and I found out what the, you know, the, they drink a lot in the Himalayas, which is like Tibetan tea, or they call it like butter tea and lemon teas. They drink like two teas a lot. And uh, so one is a tea with salt. That's the butter tea and butter and a very strong tea, which they boil for for hours. 
Another is kind of a lemon tea. And I had a doctor already by that time that helped me with my recipe. And I said, wow, is this, is this a, you know, cultural or is it actually beneficial? And he goes, no, it actually has a lot of impact because it's a, you know, it's a triple hit of natural caffeine, vitamin C and electrolytes. And that then became the basis of the recipe. On that kind of same day inspired the name because uh, I then immediately, it just came to me like Tenzing because my father was always a huge Tenzing Norgay fan. He'd always tell me, you know, about when he climbed Mount Everest uh, for the you know for the first time together with Hillary and it was a beautiful story of you know a man I've read you know all the books I speak with the family a lot so I know a lot about him uh, and it's an always one of the most inspiring stories of a man who you know came from very little and reached the top of the world so I thought that was such a cool story as well and then the cool thing as well then I thought okay it was available which is also quite unique if you launch a drink because you know drinks are in the same category so an energized drink same category as beers juices everything so every name you could possibly think of that i had thought of before that moment was taken and this one was available and i asked the trademark lawyer i said do i need permission of the family and he goes well you don't because it's a very common name in that in that area so it's like it's like someone would call drink john but i was like no i do want their permission of course i get i went to you know i met the whole family and uh, you know we work uh, closely we've been partners in the business uh, ever since that must have been an incredible moment for you to meet his family it just must have been amazing what did what did you talk about well it was there's a picture of me which is really cool there's a picture of me where i'm talking to jumbling having a uh, having a, a butter tea and I also, uh, I, I also think it's the best picture that someone's ever taken of me. But why? Because I was genuinely happy. I was like so happy and such a beautiful moment to be there and having this traditional tea together with him, you know, and talking about our partnership and about his father and about him. Jumling himself is a you know, very accomplished climber and guide. Um, yeah, so yeah, it was a really, really cool moment. And that, that's, I think, the cool thing about also entrepreneurship, I would say, is that I didn't start this business to think that something like that would happen. And that was always kind of, you know, when you're in a bigger business, it's all like, you know, paths are set out and it's a bit more clear what you're going to be doing over the next whatever months or years, even with a clear kind of career path. Or, And I think when you, when you start your own business, it's all very, you know, unknown what's going to happen. And that's scary, but also very cool, like in this case. And had you tried the original tea then or the recipe before... You went to check it out. If you, if you had tried it, what was it like? Well, you know, to be honest, the flavor and the ingredient, it was more like the basic inspiration of the vitamin C from the lemon tea, the, the strong, the caffeine from like so the teas. Um, you know, so we have, we have got Himalayan rock salts in there because, you know, that was also based because we think it's the most pure form of salts and has a lot of ele other electrolytes that are very good for the body. Um, our drink tastes nothing like it, but it has the lemon juice and it has the green tea, but also has, for instance, green coffee. So, because we couldn't get enough green, you know, caffeine from just the green tea. So it's a mix of green tea and green coffee. So then afterwards we kind of looked at what's the best functional mix that we can get from plants. But the basic inspiration was, was from there. Yeah, I mean, that's what I always think, you know, long before there was any artificial energy drinks around, there's people drinking natural stuff that was working just as well, if not better. So that's the cool thing also, why make something artificial that, that nature can, you know, do better but there are energy drinks out there you know this because you worked at red bull you were the marketing boss there was it not intimidating for you i know you would obviously understand the market but to also understand that here is a giant competitor that i know so much about that i have to go up against 
Is there an advantage or a disadvantage to that? Um, look, I'd started one business before and one of the biggest insight I had from that was it's good to know the market that you're operating in. So, uh, and that was like a big learning from my first go. Um, so I think in that sense, it's an advantage that you know it. You know, so I think, you know, I don't think that's, that was a put, putting off for me uh, because, yeah, I think that would be putting off, put everyone off at the end of the day. So, no, I think, you know, I, I was always hesitant and I, always, I still am to be overly negative about them. You know, if you look at, let's say, what Brewdog does and just like kicks beer at every turn, I've always found that more difficult, I guess. So that was, that's the only disadvantage, I'd say. Because I was like, I work there. I, you know, I know a lot of people there. They're they're great. They're nice people. You know, so I had a, had a great time there. So you know that that's uh, maybe helped me back from being more harsh. But your cell is different. Your USP is that it's a natural energy drink. How important is it to differentiating Tenzing from other brands on the market? How big a thing have you discovered that to be for the consumers? Well, that's also such an interesting question. Look, it was really cool because when I started. Basically, we started this category that's now called natural energy. So it's like it's become a whole category in its own right within the energy drinks. And there's been, you know, there's been many followers since from, you know, from Danone to Unilever to, you know, Britvic. They've all launched a natural energy since then. Some are doing well. Others have like not made it. Uh, and so that's kind of cool, I think. And I didn't really expect that to happen, to be honest. I think you're always a bit naive when you start. So there's two, like, there's two things that I think are quite neat. One is because I knew, uh, like, again, like most people know that a lot of people worry about those two things, artificial ingredients or the artif- artificial sweeteners, all that kind of stuff that are also getting a much more negative press now again and just the high sugar levels. So I knew people worried about that. It's actually, there was, a, you know, quite high you know, percentage that worried about that. So I was naively thought, if you then just launch a drink that is low in sugar and has only plants, uh, plant-based, people would all drink it, but that's not how it works. <laughs> so uh, you have to kind of, you know, it's all habits that you're stuck into. It's like, you know, social comparison or like, you know, you're not drinking something that no one else is drinking. There's all these deeper beliefs that we all have as, as people. Uh, that it just takes time to launch something like that. But then on the other hand, now we're like more than six years in, it has become an own category in its own right. But And we are the fastest growing. So we're now going to do roughly about 12 million turnover this year. We are the fastest growing. We're nearly doubling in retail, even after six years. So we're the fastest growing energy drink in the whole category. So outgrowing all those huge big dogs. So yeah, I think um, it's kind of, naively thinking it's going to go quicker but then at the end if you just keep going you know it did did it did work out would it not have been easy for you to just drop a little teaspoon of sugar in there as mary poppins says and just put it in there to help things sell a bit better i mean did it ever occur to you to think about trying a different version of it or do your entire values effectively prohibit that sort of thing definitely like you know so for instance now with all the costs going up and the global warming you know, it has an impact on the likes, you know, so last year was a huge bad year for the raspberry crops, for instance, because it was really cold and really hot. And those are the times you think, God, if I only, only also had only artificial flavorings in there, right? So that's also what I find very shocking, to be honest, like 
go to the most energy drinks or any drink for that matter and and they call themselves whatever a cherry bomb but there's not a single trace of cherry to be found we've always said we take our energy from nature and we put all our energy back into nature and i think if you're con- one of the biggest problems at the moment i believe is that we're just disconnected from nature more and more uh, and if you don't even source your ingredients from there like there's no benefit for you to be had to save nature because you're making it artificially anyway so the fact that it does hurt us more and we do pay more for these ingredients kind of inspires us at the same time. And that aspect of giving back to nature goes beyond just the ingredients of the drink, doesn't it? That's a whole ethos of the company. You're carbon negative, for example, in your manufacture. Yeah, so what we've done, and, and that's obviously grown over the years, right? Because in the beginning, you're tiny and, you know, we're literally, we were sitting in a hotel lobby trying to sell a case of Tenzing. Uh, but it was always there in the foundation of the business. Because one of the first things I did was with Jumling, for instance. Actually, when we just started, so Jumling is the son of Tenzing Norgay, and we started. And actually, at that time, it got quite a lot of news in the UK that the routes to Everest was littered. I called him. I was like, is there anything we can do? And I had these cool ideas of like going there with a little team and doing these cleanup missions. So it'd be cool because we always had like this community feel with Tenzing. So we thought hey, we could definitely get a group of people to come. And he just basically went, nah, doesn't work. Uh, we need bins. We need to build bins because they, they were just like oil barrels that would fall over. I saw it later. And I was thinking, oh, so my whole first marketing budget we'll go to building bins in Nepal. <laughs> I mean, how's that going to help me? Uh, but we did it. And it's like a cool like way of, I think, being genuine about, about our commitment. So that was the first marketing spend I ever did. And there was like little plaques on it that says Tenzing, you know, funded this. And, and we've had an occasional Instagram post on it, but I don't think it drove any business. But then, and then we've just kind of increased that uh, over the years. So uh, we're now like we're, we're B Corp certified, for instance, but like from a carbon footprint, that's where we take very, very seriously. So we have a four step approach we defined. First of all, is knowing our footprint. So we know our whole footprint from crop to can. So every piece of footprint we know. We work with Carbon Cloud for that. So we, do, we know it, we show it, then we lower it as far as we possibly can. We have lowering processes where we actually lower our, our um, footprint every year. We've successfully done that till now. And then lastly, everything we cannot lower, we locally offset. So we, we look at, let's say, you know, we take our green, green tea from Kenya. We try and source most of our ingredients from close to home, but some ingredients obviously like tea and coffee cannot be produced in the UK. So then we, can, we take our tea for, from Rainforest Line certified farms, but then we have projects there to offset more than we emit in the country where we emit it. So we're officially carbon negative, taking more carbon out of the air than we emit. But I think the other three steps are just as important. I think the interesting bit about the first bit, I think 95% of companies already fall short of knowing their own carbon footprint. And I think that is just a disgrace. You know, if you think what's happening now, and at the end of the day, it's, it's companies that emits the carbon, right? You could argue, yes, it's people choosing those companies, it's people driving the cars, and they also have to make choices. But at the end of the day, all is that all to the companies. And if they don't even know their footprint, uh, how could someone even choose to do the right thing? You know, and that's why we think carbon labeling is so important because then you give the, the, you know, everyone the choice to choose lower products with lower impacts. Are you saying that people are looking for carbon neutral products? I mean, do consumers actually care about that environmental aspect? You know, that's like, you know, the most important question there is, you know, and if I'm totally honest, 
and it's actually known as the as the as the behavioral gap. You know, if you ask someone, do they care? You know, the younger they are, the more they do. Do they change their behavior as a result? Very too little. At the same time, and that's why I think it's always so nice about the carbon labeling. So people ask me, okay, so this is, you know, 0.45 carbon equivalents. Does anyone understand that? And I go, nobody. <laughs> but that's the thing about carbon labeling. I'm putting it on, it's very vulnerable. I'm putting it on. I'm saying exactly how much carbon footprint it is. What, what's my automatic reaction? Try and get as low as possible. So that there's an element of putting pressure on yourself and there's an element in the future. If we all start doing it, it will be known. And, you know, for instance, I was eating in Oaxaca the other day and, I, and they have it on their menu. It's carbon labeled. So then you do start to choose and you go, okay, oh, I, I, I think these are just as nice. Then I'm, I, I'll have, of course, I'll have the lower carbon point. So should that be down to the company's own decisions or should there be legislation? Is it a sort of thing that needs to be forced through? At the end of the day, I've gone through multiple phases in my life where I thought it's all down to us, you know, the people, which I th still think it is. At the end of the day, there's three big entities in the world, right? If you think about it simply, it's the people, it's the governments and it's the companies. So, and the companies and governments have most impact, but they will only do what people think is important. You know, so they, they, they do research, like companies do research, what do they think is important? And if, they, and if people say, well, I don't find carbon labeling very important, then they'll, they'll just simply not do it. We, all of us have to like demand that. So for instance, I always think if, if more and more people drink Tenzing and we keep growing as fast as we're growing because you just see a group of people that find this extremely important and they do choose based on that. So what will happen then eventually, first of all, we'll get bigger, which is good because we, we offset all our carbon and we take full responsibility for our carbon footprint. We show it everything. But also beer companies will see that and go, hey, hold on. Why are those guys growing? Well, then someone will tell them, well, they're, you know, really care about the environment. My oh, shit, maybe we should do that too. <laughs> you know, that's how it goes. And I think, uh, you know, and that's a good thing. You know, so that's how change happens. Right, grab your energy drink of choice and let's power on through these adverts. And while you're doing that, hit subscribe and never miss an episode of How to Be a CEO. All those industry leaders, all that great advice from those who have been down this path before you. It's a bit like bashing a booster button for your business. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. What's next for Tenzing then? How do you keep 
innovating? You've already come in and disrupted. So how do you stay ahead, especially in the food and drinks industry? I guess, I mean, there must be only so much you can do, surely. Well, we really, I'm a big believer in like community. So we have these really cool communities that we do a lot with. We do, we started everything with obviously the climbing community, but then we're now moved into running. And I think we do a lot for them. So we organize running events, uh, you know, we have our own run club. Uh, so I think, you know, if you're genuine about your passion about these communities, I don't think very fast they'll just then go away and, you know, go buy something else. And I think we do have the advantage of being the first mover. You know, people will always somehow respect that where you go like we start this natural energy category, you know, all these other, you know, have followed suit. Um, so I think people do respect that and kind of buy into that principle. And so for us, it's really kind of in what we need see now. So we've we launched in the UK and it's really about focus. You know, I think so we just UK for a long time. Uh, now we're launching in the Netherlands. So really making it trying to, you know, go big here, which is which is starting really well. And then next year, we'll actually move to some other countries in the Alps. Because that's where we believe, you know, we obviously would fit really well, you know. So and, and therefore it will slowly spread. So every new country that you add becomes just a tiny bit more easy. It's still very difficult because you're kind of starting again, but still you've got a better story. You know, people would have heard of it maybe from a visit to London or like you know a trip to Amsterdam, and then if they go to the Alps and bring it back. So I think you know slowly but surely it will become easier. In every country you launch, it's still, yeah. I think it is like, I think it's one of the biggest, that's one of the things I always, always want to emphasize on like, you know, platforms like this is that it just takes a lot of time. So we're actually in the same growth curve as BrewDog. If I take out the COVID year. I think we all wish we could take out the COVID year. Uh, we, only, we grew 5% still that year, which is quite not astonishing if we, if we think we like we lost half our channels. Um, we still grew 5%. But like if I take that year out, because all the others, we like nearly doubled every year or tripled. If we take out that year, we're on the same growth curve of Fever Tree and BrewDog. And it shows if you look at their growth trajectory, it also they've got roughly the same growth trajectory, which kind of shows if you're launching a drink or food and you're kind of keep chipping away, you keep working hard and doing the right things. There is kind of a natural growth curve, it seems, uh, but it always takes a lot longer than you think. So I think that's the the main advice if you, anyone's starting. If I always hear someone, oh, I want to exit in two years, I'm like, oh, you're never going to make it. But if people are realize that it's going to be a long, long journey, and I, and I think enjoying that journey, that's the most important thing as well. So we've got a cool team of like 15 people and we're all in this together. And uh, yeah, it's just a great, we've all got the same passions, the same drive. And that's what really kind of gets a you know company going at the end of the day. Yeah, just thinking about your branding, that, imaging just looking at your cans you've got a a mountain on the can there it made me think you can't run up a mountain can you you have to climb it and it's going to take a really long time do you ever look at your own can and think yep i'm climbing that yeah yeah no, no true yeah it's a really good analogy actually you can't run up a mountain i've never used it that way but it's it's true it's a really great a great one and i think we all realize it and, and i think you know you're also why also we took about four years to launch in this, our second country. A lot of food and drink companies or any company goes, scales internationally. I remember my dad read this article of another drinks company. He said, but they're already in 40 countries. Why, why, why are you not there? And I think a lot of what you see a lot now, you see that with the QComs and you see with all these different, like that scale really fast, get a lot of funding. They're basically scaling a business model that hasn't been proven yet. And I think for us, we really wanted to show, like we wanted to know 
that it works in the UK. And then we go, okay, it's working here now. We're growing really fast. Uh, let's try another country. And then you learn a lot from that again. Uh, and then once we launch one other country, I think the next year we're ready to launch in two more. You know, so we're really also taking it kind of slow. So you obviously created the company. You're the boss of this company. You have a strong staff philosophy, don't you, about management? I, I guess people taking responsibility for themselves. One of the reasons I also wanted to start for myself, there's two reasons. One, I really felt like this need to make a positive impact. There's three reasons, actually, like a positive impact. Secondly, kind of to show myself what I was made of. Like, you know, if you're in a big company, you know, all those companies I worked for would have been big if I wasn't there as well, you know. And that comes to my third point. I was very anti-hierarchical. I didn't like people telling me what to do. Um, and therefore, because I, I had all these other ideas that I thought were better. So I wanted to kind of check nearly if that was indeed true. But also I realized you know, I just don't like the hierarchy structure. It's I'm basically based on distrust, right? I'm your boss. I'm checking what you should do. Tell me what you've done it, blah, blah, blah. And I always hated that element to it. So I was, if I start, I start my own business, I'll be the only one who benefits because then I'll be the only one who doesn't have a boss. So I thought as I read a lot into this and like look at like and a lot of into self-managing companies and we are a self-managing company. You don't, you don't get a boss when you go I in, you choose your own boss, which is one of the coolest things we do actually. We call it a coach. So you, you, get, you get assigned someone for the first three months and after three months you choose your own coach who then takes kind of all the boss type roles that a normal boss would have. Um, you know, it's still always, you know, we're still early days. It's still, you know, a lot of, it's not only positives. There's some of those things. So it's a constant learning process, but we really hire people that are like, you know, self-sufficient, like to get stuff done, are entrepreneurs in their own right. And I think I always say there's two things that you should have. You should be able to learn through doing and making mistakes. Those are the big, the, the biggest learning curve. And secondly, kind of build a network inside and out to keep learning. Right. We all we have other learning projects as well. But I think those are the two key things that every entrepreneur has. You know, you have to, you know, you learn by doing and making mistakes and you try and use your network as much as you can. And I think I really want to foster that in everyone. So you don't, you know, you don't get you come in, you don't get told exactly what to do. So, you know, I think we attract those kind of people as well that like that independence and like to, you know, be entrepreneurial. Is it better to be the boss, the CEO of your own company? or the boss of a bigger company? I probably know the answer here, but I'd quite like to hear it from you. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, like I said, I enjoyed, I definitely enjoyed, you know, working and at, at bigger companies. I've always worked for big companies, funny enough, until that point. And fun, I don't think would be the good word because when you, when you leave, it was tough. It was just, I knew it was going to be tough, but it was tougher. And uh, I, I also, also, I was always quite open and honest about my, you know, having a big job like that, you get a meeting with anyone, right? You had huge budgets, big teams, big brand name behind you. So you get a meeting with everyone. So I always knew that they weren't meeting me for me, always, obviously for the budgets I had or for the brand, uh, whatever I could like offer. But then when you leave and you actually notice that no one wants to meet with you anymore. So, and I'm not saying, of course, I didn't lose any friends or anything, but just in a business context, it's just tough. And I remember the first, first place I wanted to be in was Selfridges because I spoke to a lot of like food and drink startups and they said, like, go to Selfridges first because that's the kind of the trickle down system. You know, go to Selfridges first. If it goes well there, you go to Whole Foods and then you go to Waitrose and, you know, then you go to Sainsbury's. And I remember the guy who was doing at the time, he left after, but he was like, you know, he said, um, he said, wasn't interested. 
And then I heard from someone, you go to the office and, the, and their offices are just above the, the selfishness itself. So if you go there, they have this policy that they have to come down. And this, I just started, so it was like January 2016, it was ice cold, I was there, it was raining, I was there with my two cans, I didn't even have like a cool box or anything, I just had my two cans. And then I asked him to come down and he was on the stairs walking down and he looked at me and he said, I told you I wasn't interested because he saw the cans and he walked back up and I, I actually, I actually cried. I was like, what have I done? You know, so it's like, what have I given up all that? It's never going to work. I think there's this constant doubt. I still have that, to be honest. There's a constant doubt, like, will it work? And that you don't have that at a big company, you know, they're the most stress you have is like political stress. So having your own business is a roller coaster. And then, and then at one point I realized that you can only feel those extreme highs because you've felt the extreme lows. That's why it feels so good. First of all, I thought they were unrelated. like I was hoping for the high, but no, you only feel that way because you're coming. It's the same when you can walk a mountain. If, you, if you'd be airdropped on top of Mount Everest, you'll probably go, wow, this is beautiful, but you're not gonna get the same sensation. You know, you're just going to, of climbing up, of, you know, going through horrible, like being sick, not even knowing where you're going. That's what startup life's about. <laughs> it's like, you have no idea what you're doing. And then, but then when you get a goal, when you get a small goal, it just feels extremely exciting. And I think at the end of the day, you know, that is what life should be about, right? So I wouldn't say it's more fun, but it's definitely way more fulfilling. That was Hub Van Bockel from Tenzing. Get the best interviews, news and analysis every day with the Evening Standard newspaper and every minute if you go to standard.co.uk forward slash business. How to be a CEO is back on Monday morning. I'll see you then. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.